Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we do delight in your law, but God, we also recognize that sometimes our our hearts are proud, God, and the things that, that we hear from you, sometimes we take as suggestions or we just sort of look at and scrutinize and maybe decide if we want to follow these things. But God, I pray that as we come before you now, that we would receive the things that you have to say as they are, as the words of the living God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today. God, that you would apply your words to our hearts and our minds, our wills, our whole man, Lord, that we might follow you. God, we pray that you would bear fruit in our hearts, Lord, today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said before, we're starting a new study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, for most of us, even for those of us who have grown up in the church, we find that this book offers a, a little bit different category of sermon, if I might put it, than you might read even in books like Jeremiah or, or Isaiah, but definitely different from books like John or books that Peter wrote. Most of us haven't probably encountered that much of this kind of wisdom preaching or a wise pastoral perspective before, so we may not know exactly what to make of it. Um, I like the way that Zach Eswine uh, states it. He puts it so well. He said, let's be honest. He said, many Christians have grown up traveling the prophetic roads of the Old Testament and the Pauline highways of the New Testament. He said, the Song of Solomon is like a back road brothel to us. Job is like a long stretch of desert road with no light, no night light, no gas stations or rest stops for miles. People can get stuck out there with no help, so we rarely travel there without a great deal of preparation. On the other hand, we usually like our visits to the Psalms, except for the ones that we feel we need to rewrite or edit because of how uncomfortably raw the emotions they express are. But most who have grown up in the Christian community have very little acquaintance with the neighborhoods of wisdom such as we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he even goes on to describe Ecclesiastes. He said, it sounds like a crazy man downtown. He looks and smells like he hasn't bathed in a while. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us. He keeps beaconing to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. Isn't that a great description of the book of Ecclesiastes? And so it's no wonder as we come to this book, it might seem a little strange. But I think it's important to remember what J.I. Packer said. He said, the Bible is God preaching. The Bible is God preaching. And so... Though the voice of Ecclesiastes might sound a little different, and at times we might think, wow, this is a depressing book or very cynical, we need to understand that the biblical wisdom literature reminds us that God is not squeamish about speaking to us in riddles and maxims and metaphors and poetry, but God is also not afraid of transparency and of mystery and of emotion and appealing to nature, to intimate familiarity with beauties and even with the messes of peoples and things. God is real 
and his word uh, speaks to our lives. So this morning, I just want us to introduce you to the book of Ecclesiastes as we look at the first 11 verses. First of all, I want us just to begin by talking about the author. He simply describes himself in verse 1 as the preacher. And interestingly, he doesn't tell us outright who he is. We do read in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And for centuries, it's believed that Solomon is the author, but some scholars today think otherwise for a number of reasons. Ecclesiastes, number one, doesn't just come right out and say that this is written by Solomon. But yet, if you look at the book of Proverbs, if you look at the book of the Song of Solomon, they come right out and say that these are written by Solomon. And so this causes many commentators great consternation. So some think that it was someone other than Solomon. Even some thinking that maybe a Greek wrote it or a Persian wrote it. Some think that there was one author. Some think that there were a number of authors. Um, if you look at verse chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So some would say that's a narrator. That's someone who is uh, speaking, someone other than the preacher. But then if you look at verse 3, all the way really to uh, chapter 12, verse 7, uh, most of this is written in the first person. I saw this. I experienced this. But uh, then in chapter uh, 12, verses 8 through the end of the chapter, then you have sort of this narration that, that comes back again. So there are some who think that maybe there were several authors or some who would say that this is really speaking of Solomon, but it's not really Solomon that's writing this book. But I would just say, as is often the case with the Bible, I, I would ask us to look at just the simple answer that the Bible gives to the question of authorship. I think sometimes we try to um, jump through hoops and and uh, uh, look at things, overanalyze things. Uh, for example, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, you know, many people would look at that and say, well, there was really only one. You know, and that was Solomon. But others would take that word son and say, well, that word son could mean descendant. And, and I want you to know that there are even conservative biblical scholars that would hold to an authorship other than Solomon. But I think also just looking at that, uh, uh, looking at what the text says, you know, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He's also, if you look at verse 12, said he's also the king over Israel, or excuse me, the king of Israel over Jerusalem. And what's interesting is, even if this was a descendant of David, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. And so the king over Jerusalem would have been the king of Judah, not the king of Israel, because the northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel. So only Solomon was the son of David, king of Israel over Jerusalem. And then if you look at verse 16, it talks about how the writer of this book has acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him. And as a matter of fact, if you look at this over 40 times, the words wise or wisdom are used in this book. And we know from Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that God asked Solomon, what do you want? Tell me what you want. And he said, I want wisdom. 
And God says, I will give you wisdom. But not only will I give you wisdom, but I'll give you riches and possessions and honors because you asked for the better thing. And there's really only one person that fits this description, and that's Solomon. I appreciate what Ian Hamilton said. He said, you know, if an animal wags its tail, barks, and has a wet nose and has four legs, it's probably a dog. And in many ways, I think that as we look at this book, I think we, we see that a lot of these things point to Solomon. And, and if that's the case, Solomon is definitely the right person to be talking to us about life and what it looks like through the eyes of, of wisdom. But, but I, I will admit, the fact is, is that the Bible doesn't tell us for certain who the author is. But regardless, it doesn't negate the message of the book. It, it is uh, a worthy book uh, to look at. And just because we don't, can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt who the author is, it is still, uh, the book's message is still important to us. Now, who, who is the audience? And, and I think this is important to talk about because I think sometimes people approach this book differently than maybe other books of the Bible. And uh, they think that maybe this book was written more to unbelievers. You know, because this is, if you would, it's, uh, this book was intended to undermine uh, the foundation of unbelievers and their worldview and to help them to see what life is like without God. And so in sharing this book with them, it helps them to sort of come to their senses and, and then you can share the gospel. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, that was sort of my motivation for picking this book out at first was as I was looking ahead, I thought, you know, we've been talking a lot about sharing our faith and as our people are out there and talking with people, it would be good if they would have in mind the book of Ecclesiastes as they're having conversations with friends and, and family members and, and such. But, you know, the more I studied the book, the more I was reminded that it was originally written to the church. And so this book is for believers. It does apply to unbelievers. It is applicable to unbelievers. But it is also written to us. And it explains life for the believer under the sun. And it instructs us as well. And so I just don't want us to forget that. So we looked at the author and the audience. I also want us to look at just a couple of terms, a couple of words as we look at this, as we continue on looking at verses 3 and, and verse, uh, verse 5. First of all, um, excuse me, verse 2 and verse 5. First of all, the first words found in verse 2. It is this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that word is repeated like 30 sometimes, depending on your count, it could be 35, 37, which may not sound like a lot, but when you think about the fact that the entire book of Ecclesiastes is only made up of a couple hundred verses, or just about that, then that's quite often. That, that it uses that word. And the author is crying out to us all these times. Everything in our existence is vanity. Now, I would suggest that the word vanity is probably the best translation of the Hebrew word havel. But the problem with using that word today is it's changed in our culture as to what vanity means. If you ask people today, what does it mean if someone is vain? What would you say? Well, they're, they're sort of full of themselves. They have self-pride. They have self-love. Uh, the way we might think of it as a person who just really can't get enough of looking themselves in the mirror. They just sort of take extra time in the mirror to appreciate 
the creation that God has given to themselves. You know, that, that kind of person. And that's not what Solomon is speaking of here. So maybe a better word might be uh, meaningless uh, or, or maybe even a better word yet would be futile. Futile, futile, all is futile. It's, it's, a, it's a vapor, it's a breath. Look, if you would, at Psalm 39.5. In Psalm 39.5, the psalmist says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Now that word breath is the word havel, which is the same word that's used here. You also, we won't turn there this morning, but also Psalm 94:11, same thing. It uses the word breath, sort of signifying the futility of life. So it, it, it is something that's, that's purposeless. And it's something that you might say, so what's the point to this? Uh, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And so Solomon takes and he covers a lot of different topics as we go through this book, and he'll show us uh, all these different topics, and his conclusion is the same. Work? What's the meaning of work? Well, no point in that. Uh, what about living rightly? Well, that's sort of a waste. What about pleasures? Well, not really worth it. Honor and reputation? What about that? Well, just it's a chasing after a wind. It's empty. It's, it's futile. And, and that's the world that we live in. So, uh, understand that when we talk about vanity. But he also uses the word uh, in verse 3, uh, life under the sun. Now, this he uses probably about 29 times. And in verse 3 it says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Um, some believe that that phrase, under the sun, is referring to a secular life. It's life without God. And so he's trying to challenge people uh, what their life looks like without God. But I would suggest to you that that can't be the meaning. Because as we read through Ecclesiastes, it talks about this life under the sun. And it refers to both the righteous and the wicked. Both the wise and the fool. So this is a life that both believers and unbelievers experience alike. And so what he's really referring to here is a world as it is in its fallenness and its fallen state. That we live in a fallen world, a world cursed by God and in sin. And, and as you read Ecclesiastes and the more you study it, it sort of causes you to think about Genesis 3. If you look back to Genesis 3, verse 17, I'm actually going to start at the end of verse 17, through verse 19, a very familiar passage. Uh, we read, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And, and as, you, as you think about those words, even from Genesis, it sort of makes you think about Romans chapter 8, verse 20, where, where Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now that word futility that he uses there is a Greek word that's often used in the Septuagint, to uh, in place of this word havel in, in vanity. So for the creation was subjected to vanity or futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
And so God sets his covenant curse on Adam. He sets it upon Eve, on Satan, but also on the creation because it says that even the ground was cursed. So when we refer to this world as being cursed, this is obviously not an affront on God, but upon us. That we live in a world where humanity has rebelled against God. And as a result, brothers and sisters, we are powerless to bring significant change to our lives. So that brings us to the theme of Ecclesiastes. We've looked at the, the author and the audience, just a few terms, and now we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the theme of Ecclesiastes. Why was this book written? What's, what's it about? Well, the author talks about how there's nothing new under the sun. What, what appears new to us is not really new. As a matter of fact, he, he, he says that, you know, as we look at, at verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is, it, is already, it has been already in the ages before us that there's really nothing new. So what appears new is not really new, but it is old news simply happening to new people. I mean, is that not true? Have you ever gone to a graduation? Every graduation speech is the same. It's a little variation, but it's all the same, right? You're getting ready to graduate. You can go out in the world and you can make a difference. You can change this world and make it a better place, right? I have heard a thousand or it feels like a thousand graduation speeches and they're all basically the same. It's the same old speech. It's just happening to different classes. And that's sort of what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. There's nothing new under the sun. But, but the writer of Ecclesiastes is not merely being cynical of his worldview. He's, he's actually stating things the way that they are. And, and this is true both for the believer and for the unbeliever. There, there is a difference, though, between the two. And that is that the Christian, by God's grace, can see beyond the sun. Beyond the, the fallenness. And as Ian Hamilton points out in his comments on this passage, he says, Christians are given grace to enjoy life in measure under the sun. Now, what's he mean by in measure? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 26. It says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. You see, there is a sense in which even in this fallen world as Christians, there is a sense of, of, of meaning, of, of purpose, of being able to enjoy life. And that's because we know by God's grace that the vanity and frustration of this present world is not the last word, that there's more to come, that this is not all there is to our existence but when God is, is removed from our lives, what is left? And he talks about that. He says, for those that are sinners, those that are unbelievers, you know, there's really no purpose. All that they have, they give, will be given away. Life appears to have no point, no significance, no certain direction. But, but we also need to think again, I think, this challenges us about what a life of faith looks like. There are movements, even within Christianity, that teach sort of a perfectionistic type of religion. I mean, even the charismatic movement as a whole, okay, take it as a whole, uh, teaches a, a victory 
that believers can have with the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. But is that what the life of faith is, is like? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 73. Okay, in Psalm 73, the psalmist is wrestling. He, he, he looks out at life and he sees the wicked prospering and the godly being trampled underfoot. And he looks and he says, look at this. I can't believe this. Look at a godly person. They're driving a brand new car. Look at that. This wicked person over here. Their kids are acting good. Their teeth are straight. Their hair's in place. And yet, look at the righteous. You know, and it's, it's as if he's saying, what's the point? You know, I've wasted my life seeking to be godly. What's the point? Then, there is an amazing transformation in this psalm. As, as you get to the end, it talks about how the psalmist goes into the house of the Lord and he sees that God has set the wicked on slippery paths that will lead to eternal destruction. And he sees that this present world is not the last word. And he sees life, brothers and sisters, beyond the sun. And this psalm shows us that the life of faith is often full of conflict because we live at the point of the now and, and the not yet. You know, we, we are in Christ now and we walk in him, but we've not experienced the fullness of that yet. And so we struggle oftentimes, even as Christians, to live by faith and not by sight because we are such sensual creatures living in a sensual world. So we must expect that the life of faith that we have will be subject to frustration and limitations and even perplexity. Amen? Is that what you experience during the week? But oftentimes I think for Christians, I hear this all the time, where Christians will say, I don't go to this church, or I don't go to that church, because these people act like they have it all together. And I think sometimes as Christians, we want to give off this aura that everything is okay. We don't ever have any struggles. We don't ever have any doubts. We're not ever wrestling with anything. Well, we just got done with the book of Ephesians. And it finished with the whole idea that there's a battle. And you are to stand firm. The implication there is, it's very easy not to stand firm in the midst of the battle. If you're not relying upon what Christ has done for you. And so, Ecclesiastes is, in one sense, an antidote to our tendency towards perfectionism. To think that we just have to have life just perfect and just have it all together. It is a summoning of us to live a life of faith that's real. That's, that's speaking to who we are. So that... The lives of faith under the sun, knowing that our life is destined for life beyond the sun. And that's why as we come to uh, the question in verse 3, it sort of resonates so much with us. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, do you ever stop and think about that? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Everything that you labor after, all these things that you're pursuing, all these things that you chase after... What do you gain? You ever stop and think, what am I doing? Am I just a, a burden in this world? Do you ever wrestle with those things? And you think, okay, I, I get up, I go to work, I do my work, I come home, I eat, 
I might relax a little bit, might go somewhere, might go talk to somebody, go to bed, get up. What do I do? I do it all over again. And, and the statement in verse 4 highlights the apparent insignificance of every generation. It says, generations come and generations go. I know it says the opposite in the ESV, generations go and come. But to use our language today, generations come and go. And we see that all the things we toil over while on this earth uh, will not be remembered. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. You know, I'm guessing that, that most of us, if I were to ask you to give a, a rather comprehensive list of all the, the major things that happened in the 20th century, you probably would struggle to do that. You might be able to list some achievements and some advances. You might be able to give me some people and maybe as a group, you know, we could sort of help each other out and think of a, a few more things here and there. But, you know, for the most part, we oftentimes forget. And that was just the century before. And, and I can make this point even more clear. Think about your own life. And, and have you ever thought about your obituary or just obituaries in general? Somebody lives 70, 80, 9 years, right? They live that long. That's a long time. There's a lot of things that have happened, a lot of conversations, a lot of relationships. And what do we do? We take that life and we summarize it in two paragraphs. And most of the second paragraph is just all the people that's, that they were related to. And so there's a lot of things that are not there. So you think what's not included in an obituary and not included. And then as the family sits around after the funeral and recounts the life of the deceased, they start telling stories. And you have people say things like, oh, I forgot all about that. I didn't realize that happened. And you see all these details. And that's just in one person's lifetime how easy it is for us to forget. And yet we spend our lives toiling under the sun only for most of what we do to dry up and just sort of blow away like the wind. It's just forgotten. So what's the real point of it all? Well, if you continue on looking at verses 5 and following, we see that all the toil while on earth adds nothing new to this world. Life is just sort of repetitive. And, and, and you, you might say, now wait a minute, Rick, there are advancements. You know, in technology and medicine. And, and that's true. But, but let me put it in this way that might help you to understand. In, in some ways, the computer salesman who's selling the, the latest and greatest technology, maybe the latest iPhone or whatever it might be, is very much the same as the Spanish merchant 550 years ago who sold the newest silks from the Far East. The technology might be different. But it's all the same under the sun. And, and Solomon begins to describe the repetitiveness and the sameness of life with three examples. Uh, he talks about the sun, he talks about the wind, and he talks about the water. The sun goes up, it goes down, only to hurry back to where it was. The wind blows you know, to the north, and then it goes to the south, and it switches. The water, you think about the water cycle. You know, it rains, it flows down the river, goes into the sea, evaporates, goes up, it rains again, and you see this water cycle. And yet the sea is never filled up. This life under the sun, and, and that's what life looks like under the sun in a fallen world. Endless activity, but no destination is ever reached. 
And so we sort of see here the weariness of our toil upon this earth. And then Solomon says in verses 8 and 9, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It is like trying to understand the world when you're at the base of a foothill. And you really can't understand everything that's around you when you're standing at the bottom of a hill. But if you climb up to that top of that hill and you look out over the valley and all your surroundings, you get a much better picture. And likewise, as we live life in this fallen world, it's hard for us to make sense of our lives because we're like standing at the bottom of the hill. What we need is to have the perspective from beyond the sun, from a vantage point beyond this fallen world. And that vantage point, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who came and he lived under the sun. But he came from beyond the sun and he returned beyond the sun. And in him we see life as it really is. Nothing under the sun can make sense of our existence, far less give our life significance or meaning because God has set eternity in our hearts. You see, no matter what it is, brothers and sisters, that we try to do to fill that ache in our heart, it will never be filled because that void is one of eternity. And only God is big enough to fill the eternity in our hearts. Um, Remembering the words of Augustine, what did he say? You made us for yourself and our hearts can find no rest until what? They find rest in you. So don't look for anything in this life to satisfy the longing of your heart. And brothers and sisters, this is not a message for the pagan only. This is a message for the church. We are so busy as anyone else pursuing things, seeking to restructure our lives, adding things we think will be good for us and getting rid of those things that we don't need. And so we sit down from time to time and we look at our schedule and we change things and we think, okay, now I have it structured right. Now I'll be able to have a sense of satisfaction in my daily activity. And yet it doesn't take much time and we're at it again because we're seeking to maybe... Uh, uh, find that sense of significance. We, we need to hear this lest we become seduced by the shiny things under the sun. And that's why people, so sadly, spend their whole existence searching for something and anything that might fill that ache. But only Christ can do that. Jesus said that I have come that you may have life and that you may have life in its fullness. And we as believers need to be reminded of that. I'm not asking you, brothers and sisters, what you know in your head. I'm asking you, where do you live? Is Christ your fullness? None but Christ can satisfy the ache of our hearts. So I I would ask you this morning, how, how are you trying to fill that ache? What, what, what kind of things fill your time? Where, where do you spend your, ex, your expendable income? Well, the answers to these questions may be an indicator of what it is that we're looking to seek to fill the ache of our hearts. But the preacher 
reminds us that that must be God. Look at chapter 12, just as we close. I'm going to, we're going to go to the end of the matter, in essence. And in chapter 12, we, we see in verse 1 that the preacher reminds us to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then he says, before death comes and the silver cord is snapped, as he talks about in verse 6, and you die, as he mentions in verse 7. And then he says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then he goes on to say in verse verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, as, as we stand before this passage today, whether a person is a believer or not, they are called to come and to, to fear God, to, to, to walk with Him, to keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we know that we cannot keep those commandments because we still wrestle with the flesh that is within us. But Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, that is Jesus, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's in Him that we can find that rest. It is in Him that we find that sense of satisfaction. And Jesus calls us to come to Him. Even as believers, even as those who may be like raccoons, they get so... uh, overwhelmed by a shiny thing that they just have to go after it we can be no less the same way even as Christians as we live in this world but Jesus calls us to come and to rest in him let's bow if we could this morning as we think about his word Jesus as we as we think about these things we we have to admit that we are so weak. That God, that we wrestle with the things of this world. And God, sometimes uh, we give in to temptation not because uh, we are weak, but because maybe we desire the things that we're being tempted with. We, we know that there is no way that we could keep your commands. But we thank you that you have kept the law perfectly. And you have given us your righteousness. And not only that, but you have changed our hearts, Lord, to, to follow after you. And we just pray this morning, Lord, that, that you would call us to you. God, that we would come, that we would seek after you. Knowing that this life of faith, this walk with you will be one that will be difficult. But not impossible. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we thank you, God, and pray that you would do your mighty work in our hearts, that we could find true satisfaction in this life under the sun, only in you. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.